Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Jim Loden from Nashville, Tennessee, who is a pioneer in the field and is following the footsteps of his father, Dr. James P. Loden, who is also a nationally recognized eye surgeon. Dr. Loden is well known for his work in LASIK and cataract surgery, as well as the tremendous amounts of research and teaching. You can find him at numerous conferences across the globe, educating other surgeons about how to best take care of patients with the latest and greatest in the field. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. You've been a mentor to me. I know you and my my father go way back as well. Uh, So it's great to have you on the show. Can you tell us about how you got started in ophthalmology? Yeah, great question, Morgan, and thank you for having me on today. goes back, as you know already, that my father was an ophthalmologist in Nashville, Tennessee, so I grew up with it in the family. But one of the big events of my life was my seventh grade science project. And I'm thinking this was about 1977 or 78 uh, neighborhood. And I went in and videotaped my dad doing cataract surgery. Of course, the how you tape surgery now is a little bit different than back then. They had one of the first big surgical videotape machines so we could actually get some tape off the microscope. But we're using an eight millimeter uh, kind of family camera taking pictures of intracapsular cataract surgery, extracapsular surgery. Just taking a video off the main monitor in the OR, the, of course, the Betamax tape we were using, you had to have an entire table to put it on. I won first to class in my science project. We were I was narrating intracapsular, extracapsular, and FACO. And that kind of brings us to FACO cataract surgery. You know, part of the topic of this is the history of ophthalmology. And wow. You know, in the mid-1970s, uh, 76, in that area, FACO was brand new. My dad was one of the first to perform it. Now, he wasn't Charles Kelman. He had to go to FACO courses like that. Uh, Dr. Harris in uh, Dallas area was teaching FACO courses, and dad went with him down to Guatemala. They practiced it and then brought it back to the United States after that. But it was really amazing the negative reception that FACO had for a lot of surgeons in the United States. There was a lack of desire for innovation at that time, a lack of desire to change. Everybody thought that intracap and maybe extracaps were still the way to go. They didn't like the edema of the cornea. They didn't really know how to use the technology right. And at one point, and I think this is a great lesson for everybody here, is at one point, the local academic center here in Nashville, Vanderbilt, and I still have a copy of this letter, they wrote him a letter that said, cease and desist doing FACO emulsification, or we're going to take your Tennessee medical license away. That's how bad some of these dads' generation had it in trying to innovate. So the one thing I learned from this, dad had to shut his FACO practice down, go back to extra caps for a number of years, Morgan. And one of the things I've learned through this process is witch hunts (laughs) need to stay away from that. I hear people saying, well, we need to legislate, uh, the AAO needs to do this, ASCRS needs to do that. I'm one of these people, let the market decide what's going to happen. Because there's always a little bit of a price, a little bit of cost to be one of the first innovators that you're not always going to have a perfect outcome. And that's just part of it. But if we look at it now, it was really funny to get into the mid-1990s who vilified FACO emulsification, finally with reluctance, 
started performing phaco emulsification in the early 1990s. It was about 93 before they actually even let their residents do their first phaco. The reason I know is I was doing a rotation there in my fourth year of uh, med school, and it was a brand new thing in 1992 to uh, be doing FACO in Nashville, yet my dad had been doing it for decades. So uh, lesson to everybody, looking back at history, don't let the same things repeat itself again. Be careful with how you want to legislate your uh, your peers and your colleagues. Let them have the freedom to innovate and design and try new things because that's the only way we progress. I think that's a great point. So you had the seventh grade science project. What'd you do next? So with science and project, I'd, I pretty much decided in high school I wanted to be an ophthalmologist. So I was well motivated going to college that I was going to be pre-med. I didn't go pledge a fraternity or anything like that. I stuck with making good grades and through med school, made it to med school, made it to, med, <laughs> to ophthalmology residency. And then during this process, one of the great storylines is my father died. As you know, I was in my second year of med school. So we sold the practice. This was before the big Medicare cuts of the early 90s came. This was right at 1990. The big cuts came in 92. So it was a great thing for mom and my family to be able to sell the practice at a reasonable multiple and take care of my mom and her needs. But a lot of people think I just inherited a practice. Uh, I had to actually go in, start up at, actually from scratch in Nashville. So that's a big part of the storyline, too. And I think in hindsight, being 2020, it made me a stronger person because I had to learn the business from the bottom up. And I just didn't have it where I could step in immediately and go into ophthalmology. But that was a life-changing experience, needless to say, to have to go through that step. But uh, everything's turned out great over the years and finished up ophthalmology residency. And then probably one of my big, great decisions I ever made was to go do a cornea fellowship. I was with Frank Price and Bill Whitson in Indianapolis. And I still consider both of them great mentors of mine. And wow, what a great job they did training me. I learned so much. I've never had any regrets about spending another year in training. Frank, in particular, is still a very close friend of mine. And we're colleagues now. And talk about surgery. It's not the student mentor relationship that it was in school. Uh, We could just sit down at dinner and be peers talking about cornea and refractive problems. And that's that's been a real enjoyable experience right there. And then came back to Nashville, Tennessee after that fellowship, worked for PRG. It's kind of the pre-private equity type companies, you might say, Morgan. And that didn't turn out too well. The company I was working with wasn't doing real well. I was able to buy them out after two years and set up my practice. But I think one of the great lessons here for our younger docs coming along is the first year I was in practice, I took $30,000 of salary my entire year. The second year I was in practice, I took $60,000 out. So I put everything else in marketing and advertising because I wanted to ramp up my practices fast as possible. It was only doing about 250 cataracts a year. I knew I wanted an ASC. I knew, knew to get a CON. had to get up to 800 cataracts a year. So I did everything I could, just pushing the numbers. And thankfully, had the leeway that I'd saved money my first two years. I didn't spend a lot of money. So living small and not spending a lot of money is really important as well, I think, if you're wanting to be build wealth, that is. Not going out buying the big house, the big fast cars right off the bat. Put the money back in the company. Put the money in savings and investments and build your practice and build your wealth that way. And then you're not totally dependent on the banks. You're not being held hostage by partners all the time. You can make your decisions independently. So those are Those are kind of some of my tips when you're coming out in practice and starting out right off the bat. Yeah. And those are, those are some, some great tips. Now you also, as part of that process did transition into an ASC pretty early on. You want to talk about 
about an ASC? Because I think you were one of the, you had to have been one of the early adopters of an ASC. Well, again, I learned it from my dad. He was one of the real early adopters. And, and <laughs> maybe we go up on that storyline tangent a little bit. You know, yeah. ASC to be a real contentious relationship between Medicare and AAO and is the quality there that a hospital provides. It's probably a little bit of the contention we're seeing now with uh, office-based cataract surgery versus CON outpatient center cataract surgery. There's a little animosity for some people there, but nothing like it was in the late 80s uh, when there was really a lot of just contentious behavior around that as well. And we've all learned that we can't even function without an ASC now if you're wanting to be efficient. There's no way to do 40, 45 procedures a day in a hospital environment. ASCs are the only place you can do that. It's a great for the patient. It's great for the doctor or partner revenue stream as well. The patient's paying less money. It's good for Medicare. The the payments are less on ASCs. So all the way around, it's a great procedure. But, you know, I know a lot of docs are in states with really severe kind of punitive CON laws. I tell people, if you're in one of those states, you need to move. Your career's going to be held back if you're having to do your surgery in a hospital. Uh, This week's just a classic example. I put an ICL in on Tuesday on a patient that came from a six-hour drive away. I did her second eye Wednesday morning before work, and then it was a toric. Well, I brought her into post-op and looked at her two hours after surgery, thinking I was just going to send her back over to East Tennessee. Lo and behold, that lens was about 15 degrees off. I just took her right back to the ASC, rotated that lens back onto the proper axis, and sent her back to East Tennessee right after that. You just simply can't do that in hospital-based settings. Just having the freedom to have access to all the refractive lens technologies, lasers, that's what really frees us up to be highly competitive nowadays in the refractive market is having that ASC. And I'm just a big proponent of ASCs and the quality of care and the quality of the patient experience that you could get there. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, as a, as a surgeon, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone has their preference, but having operated in a lot of different hospitals and different places, I, I always enjoy operating in RASC. That's right. I think I've made it 15 years without setting foot in a hospital to do a surgery, Morgan. How <laughs> to make it 30 years in. There you go. Tell me about your dad in ASCs. Yeah, my dad. So he was one of the first in the state of Tennessee. He was in, it was, this was back in the 1980s to get in an ASC. He had a one room OR, but still operating at the hospitals as well at the time. But he was one of the first guys in town to start doing that, an independent uh, surgeon-owned ASC, not a partnership ASC with any of the big companies. That's kind of where I learned it. And then, of course, my dad introduced me to so many friends. You know, one of the great ones of all time was Jim Gills. And man, Jim was one of the first guys to really start smoking in ASCs and had Five rooms. In the days of extra cap, you really needed this for the efficiency. He could have someone blocking. He could have someone close, a fellow closing or a PA closing the case. So it offered a tremendous amount of efficiency, especially in the extra cap days when you could really line them up, get them out. And then that just transitioned over even better in the FACO days of surgery. Uh, so Jim taught me so much. Uh, there's just been so many of these people that have been so influential in my life that I consider great friends. And I've learned so much in all aspects of the business. The ASC business is just one of them, but we now own our part owners in two ASCs in the state of Tennessee. So they're a great investment and they offer a lot of efficiency. So good stuff. I enjoy the management of it. I enjoy working with it. I enjoy working with the industry as well on the FACO machines and all the different lasers and lenses. Uh, The other thing I've really found that the ASC allows us to do is be part of FDA clinical trials. Uh, A lot of the 
other corporate-based ASCs that you might be able to get surgical privileges in really don't want you to, to do clinical trials. They're not set up for it. They don't have the refrigerators, the lockers to lock your charts up in. Uh, you have to go through a big approval process to be able to do a study with a whole board of people that don't know anything about a clinical trial or a lens implant even for that matter. So there's a lot of other assets where just ASCs come through for you. Yeah, I, I think those are all great points. I know you go way back with Ralph Berkeley. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story and, and maybe a little bit about Ralph Berkeley? Yeah, Ralph ended up just a tremendous friend of mine. It's a great story. So my dad and our whole family were able to go to Moscow. And this was about 1981. I was in 10th grade. RK was coming on and a group of U.S. surgeons was being hosted uh, over at the Federal Clinic to learn RK. So my dad took me out of school for a week and my sister, my dad, mom, and I all went over to Moscow. We got to stop off in Leningrad as well. But there was just a great set of doctors. And I think this was part of the imprinting process of my life. We had Ralph Berkeley there, Harry Eggleston, Jerry Freeman, uh, Spencer Thornton, Pete Aerosmith, just to name a few, uh, come right off the top of my head, and some great innovators there. But that's where I got to meet Dr. Berkeley. And years later, and we just hit it off, had a great relationship there. He was so friendly, so kind to my sister and myself on the trip. And then I was at American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting. I was a resident. You know, the third-year residents get to go to AAO if you're at University of Tennessee. And I was in the restaurant waiting, of course, to meet some drug rep or something. And I said, well, there is Ralph Berkeley sitting over there at that table. I'm just going to cold turkey, walk over and reintroduce myself after a decade. So I did. And Ralph was, as always, so gracious to me. And that was kind of the restart of our professional relationship that continued up until his uh, recent death. Uh, I believe it was just last year, the year before, uh, at the grand old age of 92, 93. I forget what it was, but Ralph and I had a tremendous relationship. He was a tremendous mentor for me. He would introduce me to people. He would coach me. He was one of those people I could call anytime, just like Jim Gills or Gail Martin, Frank Price, any of the others. I could always call them at any time and say, hey, I'm having this trouble, whether it's management or surgery, what's your experience, what's your advice? And uh, Ralph was always there, such a, such a genteel gentleman, and always had funny stories to tell, great memories. And he was so much older, he was just, than all of us, that he always had stories about something that happened 30 years ago. And he would say, well, Jim, that's already been tried. We did this back, so it didn't turn out real well. I don't think I would do you, you know? I hope I can be a mentor uh, to younger ophthalmologists like Ralph was to me. You can certainly check that box. After that kind of RK experience and seeing that in Russian, obviously you came back, you were, you were a sophomore, right, in, in high school at that time. So you came back, yes, then, then you went back into, uh, you did all your medical training, and, and then... That brings us probably out to around the 90s, which is when the eczema uh, was really starting to get used. Yeah. And, and I was in fellowship with Frank Price. And, you know, you have to realize LASIK was not FDA approved then. I was in fellowship 96, 97. Frank and Bill Whitson had a study with the Technos laser using the good old ACS microkeratome. Uh, open wheels that an eyelash could jam. It, it was exciting kind of puckering experience to do LASIK back then. The outcomes were amazingly good. As long as the keratone made a good pass, everything worked perfect. The patients did well. The Technolize laser was great. But that's really where I gained my interest in refractive surgery. But I think that's a real breakthrough to where we are today. Until the eczema laser came along, 
surgery was just a procedure where we try to fix a major problem and get you to where you could see again with thinner glasses or see it all. The advent of the extramural laser was really where the field of refractive surgery came into being so much better than the RK procedures. Immediately, RK just went by the wayside almost instantaneously. Even though it was a cheaper procedure to perform, everybody realized the value of doing a safer, better procedure that was more stable over time. And then we started looking at pairing LASIK PRK surgery with cataract surgery. We didn't really have it down as a field. We were pretty clunky at it until Andy Corley came on to the set. And then really Andy with the, we already had some multifocal lenses and toric lenses, but we didn't know how to build for them. We didn't know how to use them really, Morgan, at this time. Again, we were putting LRIs in uh, almost all of our cataracts that had any astigmatism. We were just doing it for free because we thought it was a good thing to do. Uh, but we didn't really understand how we could have been charging for it all those years, that it was a, actually a non-covered service. So 2005, Ionics and the Crystallins, Andy Corley, his education, how to do refractive cataract surgery. And then we actually were able to get it approved. Uh, most people may not remember this. When Ionics and the Crystallins came out, you could not do it on a Medicare patient. It was actually a felony. It was illegal to do it on a Medicare patient. So several senators were able to help out, get it approved so that a Medicare patient had the right to select an elective services product. And that was one of the real keys in our industry. There were other doctors that on non-Medicare patients might use an old AMO array multifocal lens and charge a premium price for it. Might do a refractive lensectomy before 2005, but you couldn't do any cash pay cataract surgery on a Medicare patient until we got that cleared up around 2007. So it really doesn't seem like it was that long ago to an old guy like me, but it's just early in my career, we were really handicapped and really limited what we could do for our senior patients having cataract surgery. Again, you look back, man, when I started in 76, 77 with that paper, we're still doing intracaps, extra caps. Then we go to FACO, and all of a sudden we're doing refractive cataract surgery, getting people out of glasses with multifocal lenses or accommodating lenses, combining it with LASIK or PRK procedures, toric lenses. And then, lo and behold, the Femto laser comes out, you know, and we have another process that adds more. You can say, I love Femto. I hate Femto. Different people have different views on that as well. I like it. I love the precision of the LRIs. I love the guidance of the toric lenses interacting with topography guided and iris recognition lasers. It really improves the accuracy of the toric lenses. And we basically made a new subspecialty within ophthalmology now and the lenses keep getting better we have more varieties of lenses than we ever had before so it's a, it's still a very exciting time to be in ophthalmology and things just keep moving all the time and a lot of people don't realize that andy was really involved in the old chiron days and the hansatome and the Technolos lasers and advances of refractive surgery in the very early days of the 1994, 95, 96 time frame. So Andy came through that. He was an IOL rep. He used to even call on my dad years ago. Using in in the good old days of one PMMA lenses, but uh, the IOL companies made a lot of money, four or five hundred bucks per lens back in those days. The surgeons were making twenty five hundred dollars per case and nineteen eighty dollars. So it was a loop business, uh, just doing Medicare cataracts before the big cuts of ninety two came along. Wow. I know we kind of talked about some of your mentors. Do you want to talk about your dad a little bit? My dad was a great mentor, Morgan. Losing him at age 59, I'm 58 now, was a, it was an impactful event in my life. It was one of those events that really 
changes the course of your life. Obviously, I didn't just walk into his practice, as I mentioned before, but I lost lost my best friend, lost a great mentor to me. He was a great spiritual Christian man. He was great to his patients. He taught me so much about how to care and love for your patients. I get angry when I see people not care for their patients and not do what's in the best interest of their patients. You don't worry about the dollar sign. You don't worry about nowadays. It's not about the upgrade. It's about what's right for your patient. I learned that from my dad. Being a hard boss, but yet being a fair boss. Being a boss that people respect because you're fair with them. And dad was dad was not a softy at all with his employee teams, but he was always fair, rarely ever raised his voice. I haven't always gotten that trait quite right, uh, but in correcting his employees and, and his family members, my sister and myself as well, rarely ever lost his temper, rarely ever raised his voice. So he was just a fantastic mentor. I enjoyed all our times hunting and fishing together as well. So lost a big impact in my life, but because of his relationships in ophthalmology, I gained so many. You know, we talked about Ralph already. Jim Gills did so much for me. He's been a, just a great friend over the years, taught me so much about high-volume cataract surgery, put me in positions where I probably wouldn't be. He introduced me to Gail Martin as well, and Gail really stepped my career up in a way that I never would have appreciated. Uh, my dad, Jim Gills, Ralph, and Gail were all in an organization that you and I are both in right now, Society of Excellence and I Care C, but they were kind of the founding members of that organization. And at one point, C was $300,000 in the red. The organization wasn't doing well. And Gail said, hey, Jim, your dad was one of the guys that set this organization up. I really want you to take it to the next level. I wasn't really sure I was ready for that at the time, but Gail put me in that position of being vice president. It was supposed to be four more years before I came president. Unfortunately, our president had a severe, tragic motorcycle accident, and I was immediately propelled when Bert Glazer got injured, I was immediately propelled into that position and overtook this terrible budget. But one of the things this taught me was how to manage a, at the time, very dysfunctional board of directors that was making very poor financial decisions. I considered it a personal affront if I had failed at this job. I was willing to really work at it hard, be quite tactful, but yet very aggressive. I had to alienate several older doctors who were of my mentor age group. That found that very difficult, but it was a great that sometimes you have to make very difficult decisions to move things on to bigger and better. So one of the great things we did was we changed the Caribbean Island meeting. It was uh, originally called just the Island meeting and brought that back to profitability, changed the venues on it, changed the membership of the C organization, changed the way we did our fall practice tune-up meetings. And a couple of years later, the organization was extremely viable, had cash in the bank, did about a $900,000 turnaround in the organization over that time frame. So it's one of the things I'm really proud about having accomplished is being able to do that. But it was all because Gail put me in that position. Jim put me in that position as well. So they backed me up uh, when other people were not wanting to move along. Uh, always felt like they had my back. And having two people like that that are such powerhouses in the industry along with Ralph, that gave me the ability to move the needle on that organization and move on. And then I've had other, you know, we mentioned Frank Price, Bill Whitson at Cornea Consultants, taking me on wing over the years. Uh, you know, nowadays I look at guys, I don't spend a lot of time with them, but you ask who would be my mentors now? I think 
I look at Roberto Zaldivar as well and Roger and what they've done with the ICL and innovation in the ICL. Let me tell you what, doing what they did is not easy. You could never do what they did in the United States. Uh, years ago, I brought about a way of using an intralase to make bladeless cataract surgery and incisions. It met with tremendous industry scorn. People just did not want to use anything off-label. The competitive laser platforms were very vindictive about it, did not want it to succeed at all. So I learned some great lessons there. But you look at what real innovators like the Zaldivars have done. They've put up with that type of stuff in any new projects they do. Juan Bay has been a great friend, and I consider Juan a great mentor down in Dominican Republic. Uh, he's another guy I can say, hey, I've heard about this. I know you did some studies on it. What did you really see going on? You know, those type like people that you could call them up and have that conversation and know how do you position your practice, uh, your clinical trials, because they are willing to mentor you and share. So there's just so many great people out there in the industry. You just got to step out of your box and get out there and meet them and learn from them. Yeah. How'd you meet Juan and, and this out of ours? Yeah, so Juan, uh, I did my first ICL surgery with Juan, I think in 2002 or three or four, something like that. It was a long time before it actually FDA approval, I think in 05. I think we're two years ahead. Jim Gills and I were down there. Marguerite McDonald was down in Dominican Republic on that trip, so I got to really meet Marguerite some time. I'd interviewed with her for fellowship, so that was the first time I had met Marguerite. So again, just building these relationships up over the years, and uh, we had a great time down in Dominican Republic, and then Juan's son, Juan Jr., uh, came to Vanderbilt here in Nashville, and um, we, my, we had Juan over to the house, had him down to the farm, did a graduation dinner for him, and we just continue being close, close friends ever since then. So you just meet these wonderful in ophthalmology, these great friendly people who are, you just immediately have a connection with them. So these relationships continue to build over the years. And that's one of the reasons I like going to meetings as well. As you know, I don't go to as many as I used to. I've got a 16 and 18 year old. I want to be here at the house with them before they go off to college. For the last couple of years, they're at the house here. Uh, but I love being at the meetings and the colleagues I get to interact with. In ophthalmology, it's like a little bit of a family. And I think that's why so many of us love to be together and have dinner together, break bread and have a good time talking about our professions and what we do. Do you want to talk about C and kind of how C was founded? Yes, the so Society of Excellence in Ophthalmology, it was founded in the late 1980s. And the reason it was founded is the tremendous pushback doctors were having, whether it be fake emulsification, but mainly the ASC business. The cataract, high-volume cataract surgery surgeons were receiving a lot of negative press during this time. The academic institutions we're going after them. You know, it's not safe to do 30 or 40 procedures per day. You shouldn't be doing it in an outpatient surgery center. You shouldn't be using FACO. You should be using intraocular lenses even, maybe. The Society of Excellence in Eye Care was put together. A lot of high-volume surgeons all across the United States got together, worked with Alan Ryder on this, and really going out there and telling the story to Medicare about what a quality care experience you can have and even better care potentially than the hospital-based surgery center. So that's how the organization really got off and going. Uh, once ASC's issue kind of went away as it was more well adopted, people still stayed together. They loved sharing. And one of the things my father learned in forming the organization is you can learn so much from other innovators. You think you've innovated a lot and done a lot of big things. Well, there's someone I can promise you that's done more than you have out there. There's always a lot left to be learned. And this was an organization where people could come together and share 
without scrutiny. It wasn't like being on the floor at AAO or ASCRS on being on the podium. You weren't sharing with your competitor. They, the organization put guidelines in where you had to, current members had to okay the next member coming in that they weren't in a non-compete zone, or maybe they were in the non-compete zone potentially, but hey, I like this guy. He's got something to teach me. I'm going to let him in anyway. I'm not going to blackball him. So the organization now is really matured into it. We have a legislative uh, branch that tries to advocate for high-volume refractive cataract surgeon rights, whether we go to meetings and sign on with OOST or ASCRS, uh, or we independently do it. And a lot of us have spent quite a bit of time in Washington with our senators and congressmen as well over the years. And when issues come up, we're on a plane there or picking up the phone and calling our congressmen and senators and letting them know the real story uh, behind the scenes instead of just hearing it from their staffers. The other thing we get to do is really just share a lot. And, and we close the doors in some of our C meetings and we don't allow any vendors in. A lot of us are consultants. So it puts us in, if we're on the floor at a major meeting, we have so many confidentiality agreements. We have issues with our consulting companies. We may not want to tell the whole story to everybody out there on the street of what's going on inside our practice. But with our few friends that we consider confidants, we can sit there and say, this is working. This isn't working. I had this major complication. I don't want to publicize it, but how would you have done it? There's the ability to do that in a private setting that you just don't get at the other larger, more public meetings. So it's been a great organization for me. I started with C about 20 years ago and was nominated up by Harry Eggleston and then Gail, Gail and Jim got me in and been in it ever since and can't imagine ever getting out of it. Yeah, I think that C is probably one of the most exciting organizations that I'm a part of, both C and ECOS as well. Just, you know, these, these small organizations, you just get to do a lot more. You even look at the Caribbean Eye meeting, Morgan. One of the things we really instituted years ago when I was co-chair of that meeting was making sure we had the ability to be very candid, that uh, someone in the audience can come up to the microphone and say, well, that was a I really don't agree with you, and I kind of think your talk's a little bit of horse hockey or too much industry, and that's what makes it a fun, interesting meeting, though, is that there is the freedom of those of us in the audience to go to the mic and have friendly disagreements uh, with someone else on the podium. Yep. It is a ton of fun. And I always learn so much at those meetings because it is that kind of, even when you're on the podium and presenting, it's still actually an open conversation with everyone in the audience too, which is what's so great. So you do some teaching, you've hosted some residents uh, over the years and helped teach cataracts. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I love teaching. Of course, did a lot of my training at University of Tennessee, Go Big Orange. And university training programs over in Memphis, though, instead of where the main campus of the college is, where the football program is in Knoxville. A lot of people don't realize that. But that's where the residency program is. When I was there, I had four residents a year. They're up to five now. But several years ago, man, maybe even 15 years ago, it's been a long time now, Barrett Hike, who is the chairman of the department there, said, Jim, we don't have any refractive surgery training for our residents. And we really feel like this is a big weakness in the program. So the residents started coming up, spending a week with me. They would, we try to always have a PRK for them to do, try to give them a real immersion therapy and laser refractive surgery and laser cataract surgery. I'm pounding them all day long, quizzing them. I think probably pimping them harder than they've ever been pimped in their life. Teaching them a lot at the same time. We're looking at pentacams, topographies, decision-making for multifocal lenses, toric lenses, LRIs, whether to do LASIK or PRK, cross-linking. We're just going through it all and then set them down on Friday, do a bunch of cases, and then at the end of the day, do they get to do their PRK case? So that's been a great, I've enjoyed the teaching experience, probably should have kept 
tabulations on how many residents have come through the program, but I think it's probably up to about 50 now. So it's been a great, enjoyable process. And again, I have residents that I I can't even remember them exactly, but they call me up because I give them all my cell number 10 years later and they say, which topographer or tomographer would you buy? Or, you know, I'm thinking about these two FACO machines. What do you think about both of them? So I really enjoy being able to help them out just throughout their career and have them call me up anytime and get to see them at ASCRS or any of the meetings and see how successful they are and how well they're doing in their practice. Yeah. If you think about all of the things that have been innovated in your career, what do you think was the most impactful? Andy Corley and getting Medicare to approve premium lenses is the greatest innovation that has occurred in my career. Otherwise, I think we would be under significant duress. And this is what I teach the residents as well. So it's a really valid topic here. A lot of next week, I'm hosting a third year ophthalmology resident going into general ophthalmology. One of my messages to all general ophthalmologists that want to do cataract surgery is you can't just financially be a cataract surgeon anymore. The cuts are so profound now that you're getting on a co-managed cataract surgery $400. Some people might even be getting slightly less than that. On average, you're getting probably about $500, $520 on a no co-managed case. If you don't have an ASC where you can run through six cases an hour and get yourself up to where you can do six cases an hour minimum, if you don't have the ability to upgrade 50% of these patients to a premium procedure, your practice is going to be under financial duress doing just standard general ophthalmology now. Uh, We've looked at our numbers. By the time I pay one of my doctors 30% of collections, there is very little left over for the corporation, if any. The profit margins are extremely tight now. I have even talked to several of our C colleagues that feel like if they did not have refractive cataract surgery and the ability to do refractive surgery in general within their practice, that they would not have a financially viable practice. So based on that assessment, I would say the advent of premium cataract surgery for the Medicare patient is probably the most impactful innovation because it allows us to be in business. It allows us to do loss-leading procedures. You may, uh, the glaucoma cases, the cornea transplants, uh, suturing IOLs, things that take maybe 45 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes to do, and you get paid menial labor pricing on it. Have 18 post-op visits within the first 90 days. You just can't possibly make any money. But those of us that love taking care of patients can do these procedures because we have the refractive cataract surgery volume that helps us with the payroll and helps keep our practices in business. So I'm going to take the position onyx crystallines and refractive cataract surgery, what they did for the industry, that that's probably going to stand the test for some time to come is the most important innovation in my career. When thinking about some of the mentors you mentioned, who who do you look up to the most? Who do I look up to the most? Wow, that is a really hard one because I'm not sure I can even answer that question because all of them were so unique. I mean, Gail was an ex-Special Forces doctor who could do one-handed push-ups, brilliant and magnificent, magnificent surgeon, magnificent businessman, You've never seen anybody like Jimmy Gills. You know, I was on his double Ironman team. Uh, He was 55, I think, at the time he did a double Ironman. We were in Huntsville, Alabama, and we were riding uh, using our family motorhome to be his crew vehicle. And just Jim do that race, watching his brain work in surgery, you know, he exhausted me. I was 
20 something years old. And I went down there and spent a couple of days at his house with him. And we had to be up at about 4.30 in the morning and go for a run or a bike ride. And then I would drive his car to the office while he bugged. He did a bike ride in the rest of the way. We'd see 50 patients a day, do 50 surgeries a day, and do 50 post-ops a day. And by the third day of that, I was just worn out. You know, I'm a young whippersnapper, and I was like, wow, that's a high bar achieve but man what a stimulate your brain into what you can be uh the coaching of jim gill i mean of ralph the friendship of ralph it, it, very different personalities you know ralph was a little bit more genteel a little softer he was old, a little bit older in his career than these other guys but he had so much experience from the refractive surgery days in rk he was one of the first big refractive surgeons down there in the Texas market, as you well know, and took me under his wing. And then I think about Frank and all his teaching in cornea transplants. And actually, when I was a fellow, Frank and I were at each other pretty hard sometimes, you know. Uh, it, it was almost confrontational at times. And then over the years, we've just become best of friends. So I don't think I really want to go out there on a limb and have to pick a favorite Unless it's my dad. And I think I would pick my dad if I have to go out on a limb, Morgan, because he was just such a great example of being a Christian man and a great innovator, a great surgeon. You know, he formed a intraocular lens implant company that a lot of these guys were in. That's how I got to meet so many of these guys where they, they were investors in dad's intraocular lens implant company that sold to Alcon. I was an employee for the company one summer. So I got to see a lot of innovation from my dad's perspective, but also got to see a great example of a great father, a great husband, a great Christian man. So I'm going to go with my dad as the number one. I think that's a very reasonable choice. <laughs> so can, can you talk a little bit more about that company that, that he sold? I didn't know that, that he had an IOL company. As I was mentioning earlier in the podcast, intraocular lenses used to be you weren't paying 50 or 80 or $100 for a standard monofocal lens. It was $400 or $500. There was huge profit margins in the highway. So it was pretty easy to figure out that if you got together with all these big high-volume cataract surgeons and they were investors in using your IOL, you would have enough IOLs being sold there alone that you would immediately be in a profitable state. So a lot of innovators jumped on board with my dad. Uh, Lane Callahan was CEO of the company at the time, and they built an intraocular lens manufacturing company just south of Nashville and Brentwood and sold it to Alcon. And then Alcon eventually moved the company to Fort Worth. And it was real interesting. I was doing cataract surgery on a guy a couple of years ago, and he said, uh, your dad owned an IOL company here, didn't he? And I was like, yeah, I actually even worked there. He's like, I thought I remembered you. You were in college, weren't you? And he said, man, your, your dad took care of us so well in the sale. He made sure we, the employees, were covered very well in the sale, and I'll never forget that. And he said, Alcon took good care of us at the sale as well. They offered us to move. When they moved the plant to Fort Worth, they offered everybody a job in Fort Worth or a severance package. So that was really neat storyline that I got to be involved with. Uh, I had a menial task sitting in a room cutting PMM with a bandsaw. It was rather primitive. Oh, well, but that's how you did it back in those days. You just had a piece of PMMA that you would mount on a blank and it had to be a certain size square. So I got stuck in there doing that I mean, these for, were, for a summer. But. Were these three-piece IOLs or are they single-piece? Uh, this was a piece and one-piece okay. lenses. Wow. So you could have or a three-piece with uh, proline haptics. At the top. Wow. That's so cool. So before the 1990s and the silicone lenses coming out, everybody was using a five and a a six millimeter frown incision. You might do a three millimeter incision to do your FACO through, but you were still having to do a pleural tunnel 
on every case. And you, you're seventeen nines anesthesia or block anesthesia. Most people were doing blocks. So really, up until the early 1990s, cataract surgery was still a five and a half to six millimeter scleral tunnel incision with a block. And then even though you had the FACO and the small incisions, you just didn't have the IOL technology to match up with it. And then Star Surgical came out with their plate haptic silicone lenses, and then three-piece silicone lenses came out, and kind of the rest of the story is there. That's where the temporal clear cornea incision came from. You now had a lens you could put through a small incision. So again, surgeons like Mike McFarlane innovated and said, hey, I'm just going to try this one day, right? Looks like I could do this. Let's try it and see if we can do it. And that's kind of how it all happens. Wow. So your dad, Morgan, you probably know this, is one of my mentors as well. He's not a physician mentor, but a business mentor. And I met him through Ralph Berkeley, of course. And I got to know your dad so well. He's another one of these guys known for over 20 years and can pick up the phone and call him up and say, hey, I heard this is going on. I've heard that's going on. What have you noticed with your billing cycles, your revenue cycle management? What are you doing with your doc? One of those guys that I can call up anytime. And because of that, you and I got to meet That's each right. other. He was always <laughs> in college. He was telling me how you were doing. And then he was like, man, Morgan got into med school. And then it's like, oh, he got a spot in ophthalmology. And now he's getting out. So I've known him for much longer than me. <laughs> I heard your name all the time growing up, though, because yeah, I think I think uh, you and my dad share that relationship where he'd call you as well as, as you know probably as much as you'd call him too. So he's one of these people I just have so much respect for. He's one of the few operators that gets it all. He he's not just a CEO, but he's a CFO. He's an operations man. He's a mentor. He's a doctor manager. There's very few people that have the skill set that your dad has. A lot of people can be either operations or finance, but not be able to blend the two. And your dad does just such a magnificent job of blending the two. His personality is infectious. He can just laugh and smile and bring people together and is negotiating abilities to conflict resolution abilities. I've experienced some of those. (laughs) Both both the conflict resolution and and the negotiation growing up in that household. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Well, Jim, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed having you, and it's it's seriously a pleasure to, to hear your story. All right, buddy. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the History of Eye Care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.